what I'd like to do today is uh, go to uh, the question of how we do this work in practice. That's, that's kind of my primary interest, actually. Before I started writing books, um, I'd already spent a number of years working with a community in Belfast to try to explore how do we open ourselves up to the doubt, the ambiguity, the complexities of life? How do we uh, uh, bring a type of fractured experience or make make space for that fractured experience in our lives. And the majority of people who were coming to those events were people who's, uh, often people who had a faith of some kind uh, and then had gone through something like an illness or a divorce um, or a loss of a job. And something had happened in their lives and they had a choice. They could either kind of repress that, just carry on as normal, or maybe go into that, try to find a space to confront that. And the people who came to ICON were the ones who were saying, I think that I need to confront that. Now, that's not what we do. I mean, probably, you know, 10 disasters a day happen to us. <laughs> and nine time, 99 times out of 100, we choose to just repress and ignore and move on with our lives. And that's good, because otherwise we'd never get anything done, right? But there's sometimes something happens in our lives that so destabilizes us that we either do want to try to repress it or we can't. It's just too forceful. And ICOM was a space where we were trying to provide um, a context to explore that. So the theory uh, comes after that. The practice came first, and then people started asking me about why we did certain things, and I had to make things up. And then some of them sounded good. And I was like, OK, I should write that down. <laughs> um, and then kind of the, the theory and the practice kind of enriched each other. And that's very important for me. Is like the re one of the reasons why I like psychoanalysis is there's a theory and a technology. They're, they're two sides, and, and they inform each other. And Jameson was talking about that in relation to Freud, that a lot of his insights actually came from the patients, uh, came from things that they were saying that he was doing wrong. Uh, and all theories really have technology. So biology has, you know, you've got surgery and stuff like that. And chemistry, you've got um, all these creations of, of, of potions and poisons. Uh, you've got mechanical engineering. We have bridge building. And so there is theory and technology interacts. But uh, in, in theology, there is the theory. And then the practice or the technology is liturgy. It's getting together in this weird space. and sometimes singing songs and listening to someone speak and engaging in all sorts of weird practices. That's the technology. And it's a technology of transformation. Um, and something that Jameson brought up uh, and reminds us of how difficult transformation is. It's so difficult that sometimes people who are involved in doing this for a living sometimes wonder if it works. And sometimes I wonder if what I'm doing works. It's, it's so difficult to engage in a fundamental shift in the way that we interact with the world. But that's why I like this idea of liturgy, this idea there's already a structure that exists where millions of people go somewhere every week, maybe two, three, four times a week, and engage in rituals. And I'm like, okay, so if we could get some of these, you know, create communities or get some of these rituals into those places, then you have individuals who every week are experiencing this, being bombarded by this, having this, this ritualistic experience that's saying, it's okay to have the doubts, the unknowing, the brokenness. It's, you're accepted. It's okay. It's okay. And having that once or twice in your life doesn't do much. But you can have a person for 30, 40 years doing this once, twice, three times a week. That can, that can facilitate real change. And that's, that's really what I'm interested in. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what that might look like in practice. Uh, and then in one of the breakouts, or two of the breakouts, we're going to look even more concretely at how you could maybe set things up where you are um, in your communities. But first of all, I want to start with uh, rituals in which we avoid confronting um, this lack. Uh, rituals that um, prevent us from 
from exploring these issues. And I want to talk about communities of repression, and I want to talk about communities of what's called disavowal. And uh, you could also talk about a third one, communities of what's called foreclosure. Uh, but I th that, we're not going to talk about that directly. But I'll take, I'll take the idea of the uh, community of repression. And in a nutshell, I think broadly, we can put conservative confessional Christian church broadly there. Now, of course, there'll be lots of exceptions. But, but what I mean by this is that, um, interestingly, within a conservative church, belief is very important, right? What you believe, believing the right things. You know, you're not going to get kicked out of a church for believing the wrong things, but you might not necessarily be able to be a leader in it. You might not be able to be in the worship team. You might not be able to participate actively. And, of course, in some communities, maybe you wouldn't be allowed to be a member unless you believed in God or Jesus or a literal reading of the Bible or whatever it is. There's a certain set of beliefs that are important uh, to be part of that community. And belief is... Is, is really held up as something good, and there's a whole industry that is designed to you know, help solidify your beliefs, get rid of your doubts and your unknowing. There's all the Josh McDowell books, and I, know there, I don't know who the, who's the latest apologetics person, William Lane Craig, yeah, anybody else that's, I, that I don't know of, I'm kind of out of the scene. But maybe it's not as big as it used to be, because like Josh McDowell was absolutely massive, but William Lane Craig's pretty big as well. But um, the, the interesting thing about this is you go to these communities, you affirm certain beliefs, but something I mentioned the other day is it's not really about believing the beliefs. So there's a story you've probably heard me tell, but about uh, the, this Paddy Englishman, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Scotsman. Um, these are jokes that you have in Ireland. always has the Paddy Englishman, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Scotsman. And the Paddy Irishman's always the butt of the joke, right? And uh, these three people are going to, they're trying to train for the SAS. And they've got through all of the various things they have to do, all of the tests, the trials, and they've got to the final trial. And what they have to do is they're brought to this small home, this small house in the middle of nowhere. They're sitting outside, and one by one they're called in, and the colonel is there. So the English guy goes in first, and the colonel puts a revolver on the table, and he says, next door, there's someone, and I want you just to go in there, and I want you to kill him, right? Want, want you to see, we want to see if you can do that for queen and country. So picks up the revolver, goes into the room, he's in there for about five minutes, and he comes out, puts the revolver on the table, sweating. He says, listen, you got my brother in there? That's my brother. I'm not going to, I can't kill my brother. You know, there's no way I'm out of here, right? And he walks away. Next is the Scottish guy. The Scottish guy comes in, same thing. Revolver puts on the table and says, listen, in there, there's somebody. I want you to pick up the revolver. I want, to, want you to kill him. Scottish guy goes, okay. Picks up the revolver, goes in. He's in there for ages. And then you hear a bang. And he comes out. He's sweating. Puts the gun on the table and says, listen, I was in there fighting it. I couldn't believe you're asking me to do that. But he says, but you know what? At the end of the day, like, I knew you'd put blanks in the gun, right? There's no way you're going to get me to kill my brother. So I pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. There you go, right? Well, very good, clever. Um, and then it's the Irish guy. So the Irish guy, this guy Seamus, gets up, goes in. You know, revolver set on the table. Colonel says, want you to go into that room. Shoot whoever's in there. Kill him. Want me to kill whoever's in there? Yep. Picks up the revolver, goes in there. He's in there for like a couple of minutes. You hear a bang. Then there's silence. Then there's a, some smashed glass, and you hear like a scream. And he comes out sweating. Says, some idiot put blanks in the gun. I had to bludgeon him to death. Right? <laughs> now, <clears throat> um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the thing that we think is we think that the Irish guy is the fundamentalist, right? He's, he's the guy who takes it literally, really believes he has to do it, goes to the nth degree. But it's, it's actually the Scottish guy is, more, is, is really the, the conservative Christian, the fundamentalist, in that um, the point is not that you really believe. The point is that you just kind of like 
remain unaware of all of your doubts and unbelief. You keep it kind of hidden from yourself. It's not that you're a full believer. In fact, in, in these very fundamentalist churches, the worst thing you can have is someone who really believes, a type of psychotic individual who suffers from the tyranny of certainty, who literally doesn't doubt. And there are some. I mean, I'm not saying this person's a psychotic or anything, but there are people like uh, John Piper or something like that who you think genuinely does believe. Right, maybe actually does believe, whereas most of the other ones don't. Right, you can kind of tell these people who are frantically writing apologetics. It's like, oh, there's a disavowed unbelief. There's a re there's a repression, a repression of of the of of the unknowing. But there are some people who really believe, and the reason why they're a problem is if you're in a church which says, for example, if you pray and have enough faith, you will see healing. If you really believe that, and your child gets ill, and you don't phone an ambulance or something. Then, uh, and the, the kid dies, right? The church is in disarray. It's a, it's a real problem because in one sense, the truth is if you believe and have enough faith, God will heal. But like, not if it's really serious, then call an ambulance, right? That's the, un, that's the unsaid bit, right? And it's never said, you can't say it, but it's the unsaid. In fact, the, 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 the person who is the real believer doesn't hear that disavowed bit. They just hear the literal command. And so they, there's nothing you can say to them. You go like, well, you should have called an ambulance. Well, you told me that if you have enough faith. Go like, well, yeah, but <laughs> you, know, you, should, there's, you weren't supposed to take it literally, right? So these communities where you're supposed to be literal. I had a great example of this in the church I was part of. It was a charismatic church I was briefly involved in. And I was young and just came into it and believed everything fully. And somebody, literally, there was, there was a guy uh, speaking at the front of the church, a guy called uh, John, who is a doctor. And he was talking about the healing power of God. That was his thing, because he's a doctor, and he was talking about that. And then it just so happened, this is true, it sounds crazy, but a guy on the, in this pew beside me gets up, falls over, and breaks his wrist, right? Literally at the end, he falls over, and it's, it's like an agony. But of course, me and my friend bring him to the back. We just heard the sermon. We're like, okay, we'll just, we'll just get him healed, right? So we're praying there, and he's in absolute agony, and nothing's happening, and we're just doing it. And someone gets the speaker, uh, and he comes down, he takes one look at it, and says, get him to the hospital, right? <laughs> no prayer. Like, we thought he was coming down to pray to heal us. Like, no, get the guy to the hospital. Going, oh, right. That's it. There's, there's a certain sense in which it's, it's not that this is about certain. It's just we, we repress it. We, you know, we say God will take care of everything, but you still have a lightning rod on the steeple, right? There's a, a weird... Whereas I was doing things like turning off my alarm clock if I had to get up early to go somewhere because, of course, God will wake me up, you know? It's like you, the, the, the full belief. Um, and there's actually an old Soviet joke that kind of, like, uh, works with this. I love these old Soviet jokes because they're... They're not very funny, and they tell you the meaning of life, right? So, it, but it's a story about Stalin. Stalin's very insecure because everybody says they love him, but of course, like he's killing everybody, and he's going like, "I, want, I think they're just saying that because they're scared of me." So he thinks, "How can I find out if people really like me?" And he says, "Okay, what I'll do is I'll dress up in a disguise, go down to a bar, and ask some of the workers what do they really think of Stalin." So fair enough, he dresses up, goes down to a bar, starts buying people drinks and says, here, what do you think of Stalin? Oh, I think Stalin's great, right? Nervous, nervously looking around for secret police, right, KGB. To ask somebody else, what do you think of Stalin? Oh, yeah, Stalin's, uh, yeah, yeah, Stalin's great, right? Don't, don't, don't stop asking me, right? He goes, he does this about 20 times, gets the same thing. People get nervous, they start looking around, they whisper, oh yeah, Stalin's great, or, or actually shout out, oh yeah, Stalin's great, and then whisper, like, don't, don't talk about that stuff, right? So finally he's going, I'm not getting anywhere. So he, he sees a guy at the bar, he goes over to him, does the same thing. What do you think of Stalin? Guy looks around, he's like, nervous. He says, it's okay, there's nobody around. Says, well, I think he's great, I think he's great. You know, and buys him a drink. Come on, what do you really think? He says, listen, I think Stalin's great. Shouts it out in the bar. <clears throat> going like, I think, I think Stalin's wonderful. What do you all think? And everyone's like, yeah, Stalin's great. Buys another drink. Says, listen, tell me the truth. And the guy goes, okay, if you really want to know what I think, meet me at the back of the bar uh, in half an hour. So half an hour goes by. Stalin goes around the back, and there he is, very quietly whispers, right, yeah, okay, you want to know what I really think? Yeah, what do you really think of Stalin? And he goes... I think Stalin's great. Now, <laughs> you're like, 
what? <laughs> right? He's, he was saying in the bar, I think Stalin's great. I think Stalin's great. And then the truth is, he says, I think Stalin's great. Well, that's the issue. The issue is that everyone's saying Stalin's great, but deep down, they, they know he's not, and they don't think it. The, the, truly, uh, the truly terrible thing is the person who really thinks Stalin's great. That's the embarrassing thing, right? That's, that's, the, that's the crazy thing. And whenever you're in a church of someone who has absolute belief, they'll never get into the eldership or whatever. I knew a few of them who, they just did everything. They All they wanted to do is pray for 24 hours, do three-week fasts, give all your money to the poor. You don't want that kind of person in your eldership meeting. It's a disaster, right? you you got to have someone who pretends to believe but doesn't really, really believe it, right? So what, what's, what's interesting about the structure is it's basically, it's not that there's no doubt, unknowing, and uncertainty. It's just repressed. It's, it's hidden away. And actually... It's what fuels the community. That's very, very key. And I, tr I was kind of touching on this the other day, but um, I'll try and say it in a better way. But it's, it's precisely the failure of the community to get certainty that kind of keeps fueling it. So the, the kind of neurotic individuals in the church, and I mean that in a positive way, but the people who are going like, I don't think I believe enough. I don't think I do enough. I don't think it's... That's exactly what keeps them there because they're always thinking, if only I did it, it would be better. If only I was able to pray more, if I only if I believed more, if only I went to more conferences. You know, all of these conferences that, 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 that work on this idea that you'll come back and you'll be the, 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 the great kind of warrior for Christ or whatever. And so you, you, it's the, the industry is precisely kept alive by the fact that it's riven with doubt and unknowing and uncertainty, which is kind of repressed and avoided. Does that make sense? Anybody got a question about that? I just want to kind of make sure that that kind of is, is quite clear. Oh, well, here, I'll give you an example of why I wrote How Not to Speak of God. The, the whole point of How Not to Speak of God was not to try to get the evangelical community to doubt, but to say that doubt is already there and just allow a have a language that means that we don't have to be afraid of it. Right? Because the wager is, I don't have to get you, like, say, this, a church. I don't have to get you to doubt. The doubt is already there. It's just, it's seen as bad. It's seen as something to be rejected, avoided, uh, um, uh, ignored in various ways. And so how not to speak of God was a, an attempt to give a positive language in, with mysticism to say that the doubt is already there, and actually, it's okay bring it to the surface, start to bring it to the surface with the idea that that very act, nothing else, it's not about telling someone a different set of beliefs. It's not about giving someone something different. It's just about calling out what everybody knows is there but nobody can mention, nobody can talk about. Bringing it to the surface and that very act will bring more health and vitality into the community. Right. So that's like a, let's call it the yeah, communities of structural repression. Uh, then there are communities uh, of, you could call them structural disavowal. And what are they? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the liberals under the bus now, and the progressives, right? <laughs> um, because within, say, progressive circles, you might have people who go, oh, yeah, we do embrace doubt ambiguity, complexity, this, this antagonism. It'll maybe be articulated in different ways, but there's much more of an openness to saying, I don't know if I believe or not, and I don't know this or I don't know that. But you go every week and you are involved in a type of liturgical structure that seems to affirm the very thing that you intellectually don't. So you can kind of sing about this kind of superstitious type of God. Uh, you can kind of engage in prayers that seem to affirm this kind of deus ex machina that we talked about earlier in the week. Um, and it's a really interesting thing because this is like a security blanket. A security blanket functions in that it protects you from the knowledge you already have. So if there's a child is scared of adults in a party, if they have the security blanket, they don't feel the fear. When you take the security blanket away, they don't get any new knowledge. They don't see anything that they hadn't seen before, but they start to experience the terror of what they know. They are confronted with this difficult situation where they feel small and out of control and vulnerable. So the security blanket, in a way, protects you 
um, from experiencing uh, your situation. So again, a couple of days ago, I talked about Simone Weil, and she said, what does a miser lose when he loses his fortune? And the idea being that, yes, he loses money, but that wouldn't cause him to freak out, because to be honest, he's not using his money. He's not spending it, he's just counting it every week. What he loses is he loses the type of security blanket that prevents him from experiencing the suffering of the life he's in, that he lives in a terrible, dirty little shack, that he's, that he's uh, not got no friends and is estranged from his family. All of this stuff that's obvious, he just doesn't seem to feel. It's a little bit like alcohol. If you, sometimes people drink alcohol and become alcoholics uh, because they are trying to avoid a confrontation with trauma and problems within their lives. Things are not working out. They're in terrible jobs. They're unemployed. They're in terrible relationships. They've got traumas from their past. And so in that way, the alcohol isn't the problem. It's the solution to a problem. It's the self-cure. Now, it's, it's an unhealthy self-cure. It's a self-cure that can become even worse than what it's trying to cure. But it is a type of self-cure. It's an attempt to avoid feeling the situation that you're in. I know somebody whose, uh, their partner um, died and she started to drink a lot. And the drinking was just to cover, she knew that he died. Uh, she, was, she knew that, that he was gone. But the alcohol somehow allowed her to get some space from feeling that. There's nothing wrong with that. I know actually some other friends of mine who they lost their son. Well, actually their son was my age. It's a long time ago, but he died. And so I knew, I knew his mother and father. And they kept the room uh, that, that he lived in. They kept it exactly like it was. And they mourned, but while they kept that room exactly as it was, they were able to protect themselves from experiencing the full horror of the loss of their son. So when they finally took the room apart, that brought this fresh wave of pain. It was like almost, you know, more so than the death where you numb, your body just numbs. The taking apart of that room was this, years later, this incredibly traumatic experience. Um, so that's, a, that's what a fetish object is. It's not, a ma it's not a magical object, but we treat it as if it is. It's very mundane. It's just a room, but it's not. It's, it's, it's a way of protecting us. And that's why, again, they're not bad. The security blanket isn't bad. We have to protect ourselves from deep suffering. Defense mechanisms exist for a reason. The last thing we should do is attack and take away defense mechanisms. The problem with defense mechanisms is just that sometimes they start causing more problems than they solve. So when you break up with someone, one of the classic defense mechanisms when you break up with someone is, of course, splitting. The other person's awful and terrible and bad, did everything wrong. You're pure, innocent, you did everything right, okay? Um, it's a very common one that we all feel, and, and we feel it because it's a protection against the suffering and the difficulty of working through the complexity of the situation. And a good friend, what should a good friend do? Well, a good friend probably shouldn't like feed into that too much and go, yeah, you're right, they were terrible. Now, sometimes, by the way, a cigar is just a cigar, and sometimes the other person is just an asshole, right? So sometimes they are mostly to blame, right? Um, so, you know, but uh, Lacan had a very interesting thing where he said, if, if a guy is jealous of his wife, and his wife then turns out she's, she's seen somebody else, his jealousy can still be pathological. It's just luckily... Uh, he can, he can say, oh, I'm not pathological, like she was sleeping with somebody else. But like, no, you were pathologically jealous. It just so happened that you're empirically correct, right? It's a, it's a, it's a weird thing, like, um, uh, uh, oh, there's loads of examples of this. Um, but yeah, hypochondria is an example. If you're, a, if you're a hypochondriac, you're terrified of cancer, and then you discover that you have cancer, you can say, well, I'm not a hypochondriac, I, I have cancer. Go like, no, you're a hypochondriac, you just happens to be right, okay? You just happen to have cancer. And it's an interesting thing, because if you're a hypochondriac about, say, having cancer, and then you find out you have cancer, there's a really strange thing, because in a way, 
you don't want it, but you do. There's some, some way in which you are binding your anxiety to the fear of cancer. There's some trauma in your life. You are able to bind it to this notion that I have, I have cancer. And so when you find out that you actually do, there's a weird sense that unconsciously you might not want to get rid of it because it's what binds you. So even if you kind of try to, to do all the right things to get rid of the cancer, there might be a little part of you that doesn't want to get rid of it because if you get rid of it, then you're exposed to your anxiety again. Con contrast that with someone who's not a hypochondriac but who has cancer. They aren't libidinally invested in it. They don't have, it doesn't, it doesn't bind their anxiety. And so they don't have any libidinal interest in keeping it. So they can actually often do more to get rid of it. And I think about this in relation to politics. I th did I mention this? I think this is a great example, but um, where the, the, the Democratic Party uh, had these signs. Remember whenever Trump was elected and it said, love Trump's hate. Um, and uh, I thought these signs were brilliant from a Freudian perspective because, uh, of course, what it means on the surface is love is better than hate, and it's a little play on, you know, Trump hates. But, you know, there was a, you know, there's a glee of holding those signs. You go like, what if we love Trump's hate, right? What if we love Trump's hate? What if I really am invested in it? Like, I love turning on the radio and hearing the latest crazy thing that he said. And I'm reading all the blog articles, and I'm writing blog articles, and, and, and I'm actually loving the hate. You know, so you, there's, there's basically a good way to love your enemies and a bad way to love your enemies. You don't love your enemies like a hypochondriac loves their disease, right? That's bad. Um, to love your enemy like a hypochondriac loves their disease is to, um, is, is that your, your hatred and fear, whatever, you're libidinally invested. You're, there's a scapegoat mechanism that allows me to feel pure and good because I've got the enemy, I've got the enemy, and now I'm, I'm the, what, what Hegel called the beautiful soul. With beautiful, it sounds lovely, but Hegel kind of meant it as a dig. He's like, the beautiful soul is whenever the person who can't stand their own antagonisms and their own uh, uh, kind of pains and their own uh, evils, and s that they put it all onto someone else. And it's, it's a stage in childhood where the, the child has a monster under the bed. Of course, the monster isn't under the bed, it's inside them but they, they have distanced themselves from it. It's because they want to be pure and the evil is out there. And again, what's even better is if you have an enemy that really lives up to being an enemy, then even better, because then you can hide the pathological nature of the scapegoat mechanism because you're justified in it empirically. You're like, yeah, no, that guy is an idiot, right? Um, whereas, uh, so we kind of want our scapegoats to, to be bad, but it doesn't mean that we're not pathologically invested in them. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why I'm saying that now. I'm getting, I always lose track, but it's part of my technique to keep you interested so you can keep me on track. What was I talking about? <laughs> What's that? Oh, yeah, that's right. Although that's, that's a very broad. It's like, what are you talking about? Power of theology. What was that? I disavow the Asperger's. Ah, yes. Well, no, I've not got to number three yet. Sorry. I know you're trying to push me on. Can you get to number three? We can get out of here. No. No, 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 there's 14, and we're in number two, Maria, <laughs> number two. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, oh, yeah, so, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, struck, oh, and Simone Weil and the, the, the miser, you know, losing the fetish object that prevents them from seeing the horror of their life, right? So what you can often do is engage in rituals that, and, of course, the example Shizek uses and I've used a lot is believing in, is there any, is, is Poppy here? Okay. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> if, you know, if you no longer believe in something, but the other, the child does, you get the enjoyment of the belief without actually believing. So you get the, you know, so, you, it's, so it's more traumatic to you when the other stops believing because you're getting all the magic of it without having to believe it. So in the same way, sometimes you can go into, say, a church environment. The liturgy allows you to be intellectually open to, to seeing things, being intelligent and smart, having a, a reasonable outlook in life, not being fooled that there's certainty and completeness and knowing that faith embraces doubt and unknowing, but somehow engage in a liturgical structure that stops you from feeling the horror of that. Because I'll tell you something. Oh, my. Th this stuff is dangerous. It's really hard to face 
the traumas of our individual lives, the traumas of the, our political world, the traumas that are inherent in the very structure of reality itself in a little thing called death. So you're all going to die, not me. I keep thinking I'm going to live forever, but I've got a suspicion that I might be wrong. Right? So, and, and, so you know, Freud says there are the traumas that happen to you, and there is the trauma that is you. Right? So there's the traumas that happen to you, and that's where I think individual therapy is important, to deal with those individual things that are going on in you. But there is also the trauma that is you. The trauma that in existentialism is the traumas of guilt, meaninglessness, uh, <clears throat> embracing one's finitude in various ways. And uh, we, if we don't, if we haven't felt that in our being in some way, even if we intellectually think it, if we haven't felt it uh, existentially, um, we may not be able to move through it. And that's my whole thing. How do we move through it? Not beyond it. Kind of like, how do we find the light that is in that darkness? How do we, and I think we can only do it when we feel that tremor in our being. But it's so difficult that we should do it in community. That's the other reason why I believe in community. Don't do it on your own. It's a nightmare, right? We need each other. You actually don't need each other very much when you've got the certainty and stuff. That's cool, guys. Okay? Whenever you start to doubt, that's when you need community. And sadly, that's when you often get kicked out, right? It's the very point when you actually need the community is when, when so you're like, oh, you know, you're starting to doubt, I think maybe you should leave. Why are you being asked to leave? Is it because uh, they disagree with you? No, it's because you're a mirror to the community. You're showing the community what's being repressed, and the community does not want to be faced with what is, with what is repressing it. It's like uh, the minister who gets up and says, I have doubts, I have questions, I don't know if I believe in God anymore, I'm not sure what I think. Um, I've seen this happen. There's a minister in Belfast, a really good guy, who had a, I thought was a, quite a healthy church. But he, um, he once said this. He preached this sermon. He was influenced by, I think it was uh, something that Brian McLaren said. about I'm just like uh, Alice in Wonderland trying to find my way home. And I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm just doing this with com in community. And here's the funny thing, right? Everybody knew that. Everybody knew the minister. Everyone knows the minister doesn't believe most of what they say, right? And that's not, I'm not talking about the progressives that don't believe anything they say. I'm talking about the evangelicals, right? We all know it, except for if you're a new convert. Oh, no, behind the scenes, they have problems in their relationships. Of course, they question all of this stuff. But we do want to know that we know it. The wager is, don't say it, and we'll all pretend, Right? That's the role of the minister, is to pretend that they know the answer, that they've got the certainty, that they've got it. Right? Just keep the pretense. You talk to any ministers, ministers here, I bet you all of you have felt that, that pressure that you are there to somehow contain the belief, to try to, you know, you know, they want you to have the certainty. Then a minister like my friend gets up and he says this, and he goes on holiday and he comes back and he doesn't have a job. They've kicked them out, and they've got a new guy in who affirms everything. And it was like, he was like, they already knew all this stuff, and I've talked privately. My goodness, half these people are my friends. We sit and we have a drink at night, and we talk about all this. He says, like, really all I said was what everybody already knew. And yet, somehow, these people who are my friends, many of them, you know, got rid of me. What, what happened? I'm like, yeah, because... It wasn't about the community of belief. It's about a community where you're, you're there to help the repression, not bring it to the surface, but help keep it down. Um, and then what he did is he brought it up, and sadly, he brought it up in a way that, wasn't, that didn't work, <laughs> and uh, didn't work well enough, and he left, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when you see someone getting angry, I can't believe he said that. It's like, okay, why did you get angry? Why are you not shocked? If, if I say to you, I think your partner's having an affair, uh, and you get really angry and you say, shut up, you're lying to me, What? leave and never come back. Okay, what's that evidence of? Well, it's evidence that you probably already know it, you just don't want to know it, right? Why would you be angry? Why would you not be shocked? Why would you, the person whose first reaction is, what? What, what? Well, hold on, what? I, I, and then they sit down and go like, hold on, I, I'm completely... Like, I don't know how to process this. Like, what, tell, what's going on, right? That's a more natural response. But the response of anger and aggression is the response of someone who knows but doesn't want to know that they know. So the first community of, repre of repression is a collective in which the whole rule of the liturgy and, and belief 
is to prevent us from knowing what we know, from experiencing that stuff. The, the, then the collective of disavowal is actually okay to bring it into your mind. It's okay to have it intellectually, but you don't existentially experience it. We want rituals that prevent us from feeling that. Um, and, uh, oh, oh yeah, that's why in, in, in liberal churches you can go, you know, do you believe in God? I'm not sure. Jesus, think he's just a good guy. The devil, misunderstood. Can we move the altar five feet to the right over my dead body? Right? The ritual is, is the thing. <laughs> um, and by the way, my main interest in this is actually not in religious terms, it's secular terms. Uh, a few years ago, the day before wake, I did a talk similar to Todd, like I was in there giving a talk, and it was to a mostly uh, secular group. It was actually a few days before wake, it was 90% people who, and I, was, I can't remember what the, th the theme was, something to do with theology. And I started off, and I said, Does, who, hands up who believes in gods, angels, fairies, demons, what, any, of, any of that stuff, right, hands up. And there's only a few people put their hands up, right? I said, so how many don't, don't believe in any of that stuff at all? 90% of the hands go up. And so I recreated an experiment that uh, Darren Brown did. Um, and uh, what I did is I took out an envelope. And I said, okay, listen, do me a favor. Get your phones out and get the picture of someone that you love onto your phone, right? Because you need to have something that I want to, yeah, I want you to be mindful of someone that you love. And then I said, right, okay, in my hand here, I have this uh, satanic curse, right? It's from written in the 16th century, and it's a curse that basically is designed to bring disaster to the person that you aim it at. Uh, so what I'd like someone to do is, you know, come up and say the curse over the person on the phone. Nobody moves. I'm like, what? But what, what? Hold on. What? what, what come, come up. Come up. What, what's going on? And like, nobody gets. I'm like, hold on. You were the ones who told me that you don't believe in gods or devils or anything like that. So, what's the issue with this? And I, then I said to Adam, actually, I said, Adam, you come up, most secular guy I know. And it says, he got that's all rubbish. He's like, no, I wouldn't do it. I said, why? He says, uh, oh, my I thought he was going to say my wife would kill me if I did, right? But he didn't. He says, oh, you know, I don't know. Words have power. You know, I don't know. I'd go like, if I'd said that at the pub the night before, he would have laughed at that. Words have power. We slag. In Northern Ireland, our entire humor is slagging each other off, right? We, all we do is say nasty things to each other. If that was bad, then we would have probably been in like a 30-year war. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, the, uh, the, um, and what was interesting about it was what Darren Brown was showing is, weirdly, um, actually, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that we're not aware of. I mean, as we get in, I don't want to get into the idea of exploring what beliefs are and how we don't know what we believe. But what basically that starts to show is we may not believe in these super, superstitious ideas, but actually, they're still there. And in fact, that's why um, evangelism is so easy, is all you have to do is bring up the anxiety in people, and they'll start to justify, and they'll start to believe all sorts of things. Um, because they haven't actually overcome it. It's just like things like uh, sectarianism in Northern Ireland. When things go bad, you realize that sectarianism's sometimes in there still, and it just it hasn't come to the surface. And by the way, somebody might listen to that and go, oh yeah, so they like, believe, look, they believe in God. Like, no, but a religious person should be able to do it even easier. Like a religious person should not think that if they say some ridiculous 16th century prayer that I doctored to make it sound more scary, that I took off the internet, that probably was a fake anyway. What religious person would think that God would go, oh yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill that person tonight? You know, it's, like, it's a, it's a su purely superstitious thing. I read a study last year that they actually saw that there was no difference in religious people and non-religious people in how much anxiety it creates to say things like, I pray that my entire family would be killed in a car crash, right? Everybody found it equally difficult. You go like, but you don't think that you're just saying that to God is like going to make it happen. They're like, well, you know, it's, it's like it's, it causes anxiety all the way across. And as I say, the religious people, you could say even more so. You're like, what, you think God would kill your entire family just because you said it? My goodness, you know, I have to win the lottery every day and it doesn't happen, but God kills my entire family because I say it in some experiment with some idiots, right? <laughs> um, but this just goes to show that there's a lot of unconscious things that we hold on to. But like we have a deus ex machina, God often deep within us. A God who's going to fix everything, certainly satisfaction. And even if we think we're intellectually enlightened, we are existentially haven't experienced it.
So now I come to number three. Marie will be happy. Yeah. Um, is, uh, is then what, what, what is uh, the ra a radical liturgy? What is the purpose of that? Um, now, before I say it, and I'll just make sure, okay, we're not doing great on time. Um, okay, very quickly. Uh, and then in the breakouts, I'll do practice about how this actually looks. So this is all like what it's trying to do in the two breakout sessions. Uh, you don't have to go to both of them or, e or either of them, but in both of them, I'll be talking about the practice of this. But uh, basically, the issue is that for us to change, uh, it's not enough for us to intellectually have an insight. That's the whole thing about fetishistic disavowal that was being talked about on uh, Monday night. So if you know, we talked about when Todd and Jameson were talking about the difference between repression and fetishistic disavowal, the idea of repression is you avoid confronting what you know, and in fetishistic disavowal, you know it, but you don't, uh, but it has no effect, you still act as if. You act as if money will make you happy, even though you know it's not. You act as if working all of the hours you can will somehow make everything good, even though you know it doesn't. You're caught up in something, and your intellectual life doesn't affect it. So what happens, and the big example, of course, is if you've grown up trying to please your father, for example, all your life, and then your father dies, well, do you now not try to please your father, are you freed? Well, you're finally freed, he's dead, right? Well, the Freudian thing is, no, you're not. We all know that, we all know we're not freed. You can continue to try to please your father or your mother or continue to try to piss them off long after they're dead. You find out you're always going out with people who in one sense, you know your family wouldn't like. You don't, you're not thinking about it, it's just you're continuing to enact it. And it's even worse because there's no empirical mother or father to tell you to wise up. Right? It would be better if there was a father there who said, listen, you're always trying to please me. Don't try to please me. You're your own person. Go off and live your life. But now there's no living father to say that, so it's inside you. It's like it, it, and it's, it's so inside you that you can't get away from it. This is, uh, Shizek has a really good reading of you know, the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other God before me, where he says that actually you have to read that literally. You shall have no other God in front of me. In other words, yeah, you can have other gods, yeah, just be discreet. Just don't do it in front of me, right? You know, this is, remember I was talking about bouncing off what Todd said, the three different types of sacrifice. You sacrifice yourself for something you want. You sacrifice yourself for something you do want, but you're told that if you don't, you're killed, right? And then the third is you sacrifice yourself for something you don't even know you're doing it. You think you're being self-interested. Um, the, the interesting thing is, the second one where you sacrifice yourself because they say you have to fight for your country or they'll kill you, at least you have some place of rebellion. So uh, when Shizek talks about he explains this, he says, imagine a kid who has to go see his granny. And you say to the kid, you have to go see granny. And the kid says, I don't want to go and see granny, right? Traditional family, solid traditional family, militaristic type of family will go, listen, you're going to go and see granny, get your coat on, get in the car, wise up, right? But then you get to a modern family, go like, you have to see granny, little Johnny. It's like, I don't want to see granny. Now, little Johnny, sit down. You do want to see granny. You know, granny loves you, and you, you make granny so happy. And she's got cold hands, and she's wrinkly. I don't want to see her. No, come on now. And you, you give you cookies, and you know, you, you know you want to do this, don't you? And you want to make her happy, right? And she's exercise says, okay, the first is... is traumatic for the kid, but at least the kid can rebel because somewhere inside he's like, when I'm old enough, I'm not going to go see granny. When I'm old enough, I'm going to do my own thing. But in the second, <laughs> there's no way to rebel because you're getting the kid, you're internalizing the authority, so the kid has to like their own thing that they don't like. They've got, no, they've got nowhere to resist. It's like they have to like what they don't like. They have to go to granny. And that's with no other gods before you. It's like, when it, there's, we need spaces where we can rebel, like, like a father and a mother who says, no drinking. Like my parents did this. I know I'm doing a lot of asides. Who cares? I got the microphone. You're here to listen to me. <laughs> Shut up. Um, but this is true. Like, well, my family, my parents, I suppose, were like kind of, you know, don't drink, do whatever. But then my dad would go and buy us 
booze. We'd go to my friend, go and buy us drink in our bar because we couldn't go into the off license to get it. And then we would drink in my room. And there was this kind of, it was very weird because in one sense you're being told like, don't drink, don't go crazy, whatever. But there was this other bits that they were actually involved in. were saying, but it's okay to transgress occasionally. It's like they find out, no, don't drink, and then they find out you haven't been drinking, and you're going to some Bible study everywhere. It's like, oh, damn, right, come on, you should, be, you should go out there and have fun, right? There's this weird kind of like, yes, you have to have rules and things you can't do, but you, know, you have those little places where you can rebel. I think I used the example of in L.A. where basically the superego injunction is you have to be happy, you have to be having a good time. So you go to a party, and everyone's having a good time, and it's horrific. But the great thing is... Um, you can pretend that you believe you should be having a good time and you enjoy yourself, but then you go off to a little room in the corner, you go to the bathroom and you go, whew, you know, this isn't, you know, whatever, right? And then you go back in, that's fine. But when the superego injunction is inside you, there's nowhere you can escape. The tyranny of having a good time is everywhere. You go to the bathroom and they're all taking cocaine. There's nowhere to escape to be unhappy, right? It's terrible. It's the, the injunction to be happy is, is within you. It's not, it's not a demand by this uh, hedonistic, dictatorial, uh, totalitarian thing. It's, it's, it's now inside you. Um, <clears throat> why was I saying that? No idea. But... It's important. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the reason why I'm saying it, uh, keep me right, is yeah, change, yeah, how change happens. So here's how change happens. In, say, analysis, you go in, first thing you do, you sit down, you're my analyst, I'm going, like, you're just a guy like me, you're just doing this for money, it's just a job, you're just trained like anybody else, like a builder or whatever. Um, you know, why should, I, why should I listen to you? Maybe you've got some expertise like a doctor. Maybe you'll tell me what's wrong with me. That's what I want. I want you to be like a doctor. I go in with a broken arm. They tell me what's wrong, put it in the cast. You're just that kind of authority figure. Well, analysis can't really get started there because you're not like a medical doctor. The, the, what happens next, and it doesn't always happen, but is weirdly I start treating you not as an expert, just someone who's got training. I start transference, which means I start treating you like my father like my mother, like my, my brother, like whatever. Like I start to now, without realizing it, I'm not treating you as an expert to fix me. I'm treating you like, like, like my father, thinking that you're judging me like my father, thinking that you're thinking what my father thinks. So I put all the thoughts of what I think my father thinks, oh, damn, five minutes he's told me, um, all, all into you, um, and, then, and then I'm projecting, oh, I know what you think, right? And then the third stage is a little bit more than that. It goes even more. It's like, I'm not even transference, doing transference. It's not that you're just an externalization of my father. Then I start having dreams about my father, but your face is in them. Or like dreams where like you're in my inner world. You're, you're anchored in me. And at that point, when you do very subtle things, because it's anchored in me, that changes very subtly, that thing inside me. You know, I know you're going to judge me for this. I'm indifferent about it. Then that father, who's the judgmental thing, starts to shift in some way. And this is what liturgy does. So the first thing you go in is liturgy. You go, this is just regular people. But then really the liturgy becomes the, the transference. It is God. You don't think it like this, but people treat the liturgy as if it's God. And what, what do people want? They want the God of the deus ex machina. So they treat the liturgy as that. And sadly, the conservative, I think a lot of the progressives, have a liturgy that allows for that. Then, thirdly, it, it, the idea is it gets under your skin. Like you're so, that when you go into that liturgical space, it's such an immersive, that's why I call it transformance art, it's such an immersive uh, experience that it almost is like it, it actually anchors into your image of God. It anchors into your subjectivity. And here's the trick then the liturgy begins to embrace doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. And it starts to embrace antagonism in the hymns, in, the, in those sermons, in these various things, very subtly. And what that does is it enacts the death of God inside you. But it's very subtle. You're not just taking away this security blanket. So the role, you're doing it very gradually over years. Now, maybe in every gathering, you actually um, enact it in a very subtle way, but really with the idea that over 5, 10, 15 years sometimes, that is what's going on very gradually within you. 
And then what eventually happens is the, the, the idol god, the deus ex machina god, dies. It dies in the liturgy, and it dies in your existential experience. And then the god after god can arise, the faith after faith. This, uh, this next step can arise, but it has to arise through the death. So for me, what is the church? And, it's, and, it's, and I know I've only got two minutes probably left, and uh, I'll, I'll break in a wee tiny bit into the, the, uh, the break, just a couple of minutes, um, is that they, we need these spaces that enact this existentially, because if we don't do that, we can't get through. The dialectics is you have to go existentially, unconsciously into that dark space to be able to to get beyond it. And decentering practices and transformance art is that is that death of God in in the liturgy that enacts within us. Um, okay, maybe I is there any quick questions that anyone has with that? There's loads more we could say, but any quick Yeah, we talked a little bit about that, yeah, in a Q&A session. It's true. It's, it's a few things. One is it's difficult in, ex in already existing communities for a few reasons. One is because you, here's the thing. When you go to an analyst, you are thinking that they're going to fix you, in a sense. That's why you're going. They're going to hopefully make you, you know, get, away, get you away from your suffering. But also you're trusting them that they know more about the process than you. So there's a little bit, there's a bit of trust. Um, oh, <laughs> someone's watch is talking to them. Uh, the, um, but when, but so, so when you're setting up a new community, you can have that presupposition. You allow people to project the God of certainty onto it. You allow people to come to you thinking you've got the answer. You allow that. But you also very subtly say, but, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to, explore that, we're going to test that. You very subtly go, like, you've got to trust us here. Yes, we, want, we, you're, we bring you in, you're going to go somewhere. The, reason, the problem is, if you've got a community where the, in, where the kind of unspoken contract is to give the deus ex machina God, to be the repressed person, one is it's difficult to change that contract uh, without getting fired. <laughs> uh, and, and, and also maybe there's even a ethical dimension, which is that's not what people signed up for. And so you're a little bit screwed because if you start doing it, people could say, well, like, you know, you're changing something. Weirdly, you're not changing very much about the look because you don't have to change very much about the look, but you're changing something about the very, the very direction you're going. However, I don't necessarily think like that. I have seen, all, there are already existing communities that are doing it. Absolutely, in every tradition, there are communities that are raise up the antagonism, that have that promise in some way embedded in them implicitly, so they can do it. And then maybe sometimes, I saw one community who, who made the change, and they were just very honest about it, and they lost half their people. But they said, we're going in a different direction, and we want to be honest at this point, and you might want to find other churches. And they did it that way. Uh, so there are ways of doing it, but I just wanted to bring up, like, I didn't want to say, I used to say, yes, absolutely, it's easy, and, and, and now I feel like I was, I was uh, what's the word? Naive, a line, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, I mean, don't, don't hold back, don't, don't, like, this is your opportunity. <laughs> a dick, a dick, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.